And she said, Tom, you've made me a lot of money over the last few years on some of these thematic ideas. I have something for you, but you can't tell anybody. And she proceeded to say, a Moody's analyst, so at the bond rating agency, who was roommates with her cousin, told her that Kronos, a tech stock, was going to be acquired in a few weeks. Here's the date. Here's the price. Here's the private equity firm. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. In July 2008, hedge fund analyst Tom Hardin left his New York City apartment at 6.30 in the morning, dropped off some laundry at the dry cleaners, and then behind him came a voice. Hey, are you Tom? And he turned around to see them flash their FBI badges to reveal their identity. Now, it was a strange place to ask him about trades he'd placed in 2007, but Tom knew exactly what they were asking. And this marked the beginning of a nightmare for Tom and his family, as the ever-compliant Tom turned into FBI informant. What transpired was that Tom was at the very bottom of a mountain of insider trading. That happens when an individual knowingly reveals and acts upon material information that can impact the share price of a company. So a huge welcome to Tom Hardin, otherwise known as Tipper X. Tom, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on, Andrew. You're very welcome. So give us your shortened version of the story before we delve into the ethics and implications of the case. Sure, absolutely. So I'm Tom Hardin. Um, I grew up in Georgia in the Atlanta suburbs. Uh, father worked there for Coca-Cola his whole career. Uh, two younger brothers, middle-class family. First in my family to attend college outside the South, uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, the Wharton School there. I was a really good high school student. Uh, also played soccer and had a good combination uh, there at Penn. So that's sort of late 90s, uh, early 2000s. I went right out of Penn into investment banking. So I started my career there. And after maybe three or four all-nighters, any investment making analyst knows what kind of uh, rigors that can be. I was recruited by a hedge fund uh, just after a few months of investment banking uh, around 2000. So we're talking about near the top of the technology stock bubble. That hedge fund was in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, my job there was to cover tech stocks. So at the time, uh, Sun Microsystems, Yahoo, Apple, Apple Computer, before they were Apple Inc., um, covering those companies, uh, traveling to Silicon Valley, trips to Asia, kind of doing the normal hedge fund analyst work, due diligence. And what I really liked about the hedge fund business is it was a very flat structure, whereas banking, you kind of had to work your way up and the managing director would leave at 5 p.m. and say, have this on my desk at 8 a.m. Are you going to stay up all night? The hedge fund was great. Come in in your 20s, pick stocks. You make the right picks. You're compensated. You can make millions of dollars. Pick the wrong stocks, you're fired. That's fine because I wanted to be held accountable making good picks or not. And I just like you could work your way up quickly. And so I was enamored by this in my 20s. I loved um, following the markets. Just you know, what happens in Europe can happen, you know, impact this or Asia overnight can impact this. And like the intellectual um, conversations that I, you know, I was around people that were really, really bright. Just that that conversation every day at the water cooler. Did you see this happen? Or what does this mean? Or I heard, I heard this happen. What does that mean to our position? I really enjoyed that part of the business. That being said, so kind of mid 2000s, 
I also became aware that insider trading was rampantly going on with certain tech funds. Sort of my, my competition was trading stocks on information that was uh, material and, and non-public. And then the way this happened was a few different ways. So some funds would have investors who were uh, management teams at Silicon Valley companies or who work for public companies in Silicon Valley, and they were actually investors in hedge funds. So you can imagine the potential sort of conflicts of interest um, there in terms of being investors, give, giving information to the hedge fund. And also hedge funds covering tech were hiring employees um, from tech companies to be analysts at the uh, hedge funds so they could call back to their old contacts inside these tech companies. Um, I knew this was going on. I never felt initially I had to cross that line. I was always considered a great investor. Um, I was very thematic when I started my career, looking out three to five years. I love tech because there's always the disruptor and the disrupted. So in tech being long and short, you can always be long, you know, for instance, Google after they became public and you could be short the yellow pages. So you could kind of figure out these big things we get in our driveway probably aren't going to be around anymore in a few years if Google really grows. And so I loved um, the opportunity to be long and short. And uh, as I said, never really felt I had to cross that line until uh, at my second firm. So now in my late 20s, after the first quarter of investing at a new firm, my boss came into my office one day and said, Tom, I know we're investing thematically over three years, but we just lost money in the first quarter. We have to start looking for shorter term opportunities to make money every month, or we may not survive. We're a small hedge fund. So kind of stepping back from that, when the goal goes from three years to make money every month, um, as I look back at it now, the opportunity to start cutting corners, perhaps breaking laws, uh, certainly increases. And I'd also say my boss um, gave me an ambiguous message, uh, you know, do what it takes and not no other guidance. Now, I didn't ask any clarifying questions there. Are you talking about anything goes? Because he was also aware of insider trading happening, or are we going to stay within the ethical legal guardrails? So I didn't really ask anything there. So I kicked myself for not at least uh, asking that. So a few more months goes by. It's now early 2007. Um, I get a call from another investor who I knew in the industry. Um, she had worked for a guy named Raj Rajaratnam which if anybody's familiar with the hedge fund cases, he was probably the most famous uh, person to be sent, sent to prison. Uh, but now when I talk to younger analysts, they really have no idea. Uh, some of them don't know who he is. So, so time goes on. So it's really important for people to understand who he was. Um, she worked for him and she said, Tom, you've made me a lot of money over the last few years on some of these thematic ideas. I have something for you, but you can't tell anybody. And she proceeded to say, a Moody's analyst, so at the bond rating agency, who was roommates with her cousin, told her that Kronos, a tech stock, was going to be acquired in a few weeks. Here's the date, here's the price, here's the private equity firm. Now, it doesn't get much more stark than that. Um, hopefully anybody listening has never gotten a call like that. If you have, you certainly hopefully know what, what to do. It kind of just fell in my lap. I didn't trade on this information the first day because to be honest, it sounded quite illegal. But later that day, uh, the start of my slippery slope, I was talking to a friend outside my firm who worked at a prop trading firm. And this is a guy I talked to once a month, not a close friend. He worked at a prop firm. So he only got paid that month if he was up. He's down, we're talking. And he said, dude, are you hearing you know, anything out there I can kind of take a short, small flyer on? 
And I said, I'm not trading this, but this woman just called me and told me this Moody's analyst told her this company, Kronos, is going to be acquired next week. Uh, just pausing right there, I'm sure people know I've acted quite recklessly by sharing this information with him. I could now be charged, at least by the SEC, uh, for insider trading. And I haven't traded yet, and now I have no idea what he's going to do with it or who he's going to share it with. And it turns out he shared it with the guy who sat next to him at his firm. Uh, who bought call options, bought 500,000 shares of this stock. Uh, the woman that called me had her entire brokerage account in this stock for this event. I hadn't made any trades yet. They both kept calling me all week. Are you in? Are you in? Did you buy some? And as the junior partner at my uh, second and final hedge fund, I could buy a stock in our portfolio as long as it was less than 1% of our assets under management, kind of a starter position. So when fraud happens, it's often a lax. Um, there's three elements. There's the need to commit the fraud. So I'd say my need was probably short-term performance, make money every month. There was a need. There's an opportunity to do it. There's a lax control. So the lax control was I could buy a stock as the junior partner as long as it was less than 1%. And there's the rationalization. And I'll tell you today, I totally rationalized it. I said, these other guys are making millions doing it. I'll just do it one time. Uh, who am I really hurting with insider trading? People sometimes argue, you know, who's the victim? You're just buying it before everybody else or maybe the person that sold you the stock. Like it's not a, it's not somebody you see. It's not like a Ponzi scheme where, hey, I'm taking your money. It's like kind of kind of nebulous. That's how you rationalized it. Um, I said, you know what? I can place this trade, but I'm, I'm still a good guy. So I'm doing kind of a moral weighting at the scale of my head. I'm a good church volunteer, a faithful husband. You know, I can place this trade. I make thousands of trades a year. So really, the cycle of rationalization continues. Um, I said, I'm just taking a flyer and I'm using a euphemism for my illicit trading. So never did I say, hey, I'm insider trading. And by calling it a flyer, it created some psychological distance between myself and actually breaking the law, just taking a flyer. I'll do it just this one time. And really, I'd say I engaged uh, in, in isolated decision making. So if people just think about one take away like I made a decision in isolation didn't talk to my boss um, certainly didn't talk to compliance uh, didn't talk to anybody at my firm made that decision on my own to cross that line and it would happen three more times these tips came in I placed the 0.9% posi uh, present positions now in the pre-market meeting with our my boss looking at our portfolio you know maybe 25 positions we go through every position and the stocks are up 30% or more in the pre-market, he says, oh it's, oh, it's one of those and skips over it. So again, not to justify my own behavior, but I'm kind of telling myself, well, if he doesn't have a problem with it and he's the closest thing I have to a mentor, then it kind of continues to fuel the engine of my rationalization. And over those, those four trades in 2007, my firm made just over a million dollars on those trades. And so we managed about a hundred million. So only one more percent of performance. And we were up 30% without the insider trading and up 31% with it. So was it, was it really worth it? My personal take was $46,000, which I was 29 years old. Very bluntly, that was the price of professional suicide. I threw my career away at 29 for $46,000. Sometimes people think, oh, Tipper X must have made millions of dollars. And the punchline is, no, it was $46,000. And a few months after um, the final trade, maybe seven months after the final trade, as you described in the opening, it was July 2008, dropping off my dry cleaning. The FBI stops me on the street. Are you Tom? I sit down with them. 
they say, do you know of insider trading going on? I said, yeah, guys, it's rampant. In fact, uh, you know, there was these four trades I did and was giving them all the information. They start writing it down. I really have no idea what they knew about me. Um, but my first thought was, you know, oh, my oh, my God, my dad's going to kill me. You know, what's he going to say? Oh, my God, my wife's going to leave me. She had no idea I did this. She's certainly going to leave me. And then I thought, oh, my God, this might impact my career. Holy crap, I might be going to prison. Uh, but it went from dad to prison. I start telling them everything. I think the FBI was shocked that I wasn't at least trying to cover it up or lie or say those were rumors. Like I just started confessing. And so they were, they were certainly happy with that. Um, told them what I knew. And they said, Tom, you can help us out. I said, should I talk to an attorney first? And they said, no, don't talk to an attorney. Um, so they're going to play by their own, own rules. Uh, not to be morbid, but two people that summer like me killed themselves uh, after the FBI approached them. You might think your life is over. Fortunately for me, um, I had dark nights, but not that dark. Called the FBI. I said, I do know, of the, do know of this going on. What does it mean to help you? And they said, thank you so much for your call, Tom. And they showed me like a little like, electronic device that I was going to have to wear. And I said, what is that, a BlackBerry battery? Because back then we still had Blackberries. And they're like, you know, no, this is actually a recording device. You're going to have to wear a wire on some big time people of interest to the FBI and help me kind of get them in conversations to see where it leads. Now, it was a weird situation because some of these people... I didn't know that well. It might be a 48-year-old hedge fund manager. I'm a 29-year-old analyst. My job was to build relationships, so I'd attend conferences. Hey, can we meet at Starbucks? I'm thinking about leaving my firm. You know, it's 2008. I'm probably going to get fired anyways. Can't pick a stock to save my life. And so it wasn't like a, a crazy cover story to have. Meet with them at Starbucks. I knew about these four trades last year. You know, how do you do it? But it's a weird conversation because I have to be pretty sure you're also doing it. Otherwise you might look at me weird. People looked at me weird anyways. Like, why is this guy, I don't know that well, asking me such pointed questions. Um, one guy, high up the FBI's list, I got him in 15 conversations over a year. He'd say nothing, always change the subject. One Sunday afternoon, he gave me a call and he says, Tom, we need to have dinner tonight. We need to talk. I called the FBI and said, this guy wants to have dinner tonight. They got excited. They met me at Grand Central in New York City, gave me the wire. I took the train up to Greenwich. This guy picked me up at the train station and he said, Tom, good to see you. I brought swim trunks for you. <laughs> We're going swimming at my mother's house. So I don't know him that well. Uh, the Sopranos was popular that summer. All these ideas were going through my head. I played a cool guy in his car. We drove out to Greenwich. He starts disrobing in this room. He wants to see if something's taped to my chest. I excused myself, went to the restroom, took the wire out, put it in my jeans, put these swim trunks on. So it's the two of us walking out to this pool. It was so quiet. I saw a shovel against the house, a hole in the ground. I thought, oh, my God, is this guy going to try to kill me or something? And he grabs a tennis ball. We're playing this awkward game of catch. He's pouring it on. And he said, Tom, I'd been acting kind of weird. He spoke to an attorney. He asked to ask me a question. I said, what do you want to know? I was going to give up my cover. He said, Tom, have you been approached by the SEC? And truthfully, I could say, no, not the SEC. Of course, it was the FBI. He doesn't get to that nuance. He starts making implicating statements once he saw I wasn't wearing a wire. Um, up until a few years ago, he was actually still managing outside money. Uh, he was never charged by the FBI, uh, but he never had me in as a guest speaker. Um, so after that, the first arrest happened in the fall of 2009. 20 people were arrested on CNBC. So the FBI windbreakers, you know, the perp walks, they call them. The cameras are there. And at the bottom of CNBC, it says Tipper X uh, was the key informant for the FBI. I was a former analyst, so I kind of figured out uh, I'm, I might be Tipper X by deduction. My name wasn't public. Called the FBI. They said, yeah, you're Tipper X. And I kind of felt my safety might be in danger. Like, oh, my God, 
uh, is my safety in danger? They said, no, you're fine, uh, but you should probably talk to an attorney. So I called an attorney over a year into doing this. And my attorney said, hey, um, who was your attorney before me? I said, you know, you're the first I've spoken to. And he said, Tom, you're supposed to hire me the first day the FBI approached you. And I said, hey, it's my first time doing this. Um, so it's pretty straightforward for me. It's time to plead guilty in 2009. My name became public in 2010. The FBI was done with me. Um, I couldn't help them any longer. That was a very tough day, which we can talk about. Just like once become, once everybody knows who Tipper X is, uh, you, you lose a lot of friends, uh, let's just say, and let down a lot of family. And, and anybody that knew me, uh, they, they just could not believe I was involved with this. It's not the person that they knew. And I wasn't sentenced for seven years. So the FBI on the street in 2008, I wasn't sentenced until 2015. Um, I didn't go to prison because I helped them out, but I still had to take a felony. So, um, you know, I can't have a checking account in my name uh, because of actually um, I'm on anti-money laundering lists, like all of the AML lists in the world. I'm on there. So if I wasn't still married, um, which only only 15 percent of marriages even survive something like this, you know, I, I'm not sure what I'd even do in terms of coming back. You know, can't have a brokerage account, so I'm sure I couldn't have an account at, at, um, with you guys and can't even coach a youth sports. So unfortunately, I have two. Well, fortunately, I have two daughters. Unfortunately, I can't coach them in youth sports because I have to check the box. So it's not it's not me saying poor me at all. It's just these um, lifelong consequences of choices that I made. Now, going back some time uh, after I was sentenced, I went on one of my first ever podcast interviews. Somebody was in the re- courtroom interviewed me an ap reporter a podcaster had me on the fbi heard that podcast they called me and i thought oh my god what do these guys want now <laughs> and they said uh tom you were the youngest guy we charged back in the day you hardly made any money um i think i said thanks for coming you know rubbing it in i was trying not to get caught and they said no it's actually uh, we never understood the case like the why behind the decisions so i went and spoke to the fbi in 2016 and they said why don't you go out and make lemonade and lemons like go out and, and share this story and i didn't really want to do that i was so ashamed um so it took me a while to even get the words together as to how i would even share this story or why or, or who would be interested and so that was in 2016 and seven years later i've had the privilege now of uh, presenting over 500 times to audiences in 13 countries so today I come in as a guest speaker during the annual compliance training, which can, as we know, can sometimes be very dry um, and, and just laven it up a bit with uh, things we're going to talk about. So that's a that's a short version of uh, the longer story. But let's let's jump into it. So, Tom, you were a small, although highly significant player in this whole FBI sting operation. You were asked to conduct, I think I'd heard you say earlier, 48 interviews with investors who may have profited to the sum of millions of dollars. How did you feel about doing that? about having, having to do that. I mean, your role was then t- to gain their trust and you were trying to package them up for arrest by the FBI. How did that feel? When the FBI first approached me, I just started you know, confessing, um, kind of taking orders for them. And they gave me the opportunity just to ask them, ask me, who do I think are the worst actors? Usually cooperators, you might have to wear a wire on one of your good friends or even a family member uh, that, you, that you probably tipped. And so fortunately, I wasn't in that position. They just said, who are the worst actors in the industry? I gave them the list of people who I felt their business model every quarter was, was trading stocks with information around quarterly earnings announcements or, or M&A. So the way I rationalized, I guess, helping them was if they're giving me this chance to kind of clean up the industry, then I'm going to take it. Um, so 
you know, I, I'm I'm still conflicted about that because I'm definitely not a whistleblower. Sometimes people introduce me as a whistleblower. I say, no, you know, I wasn't going to cooperate with the FBI. I wasn't going to call them and say, hey, this is going on. By the way, I did it unless they approach me. So definitely not a whistleblower. But I kind of looked at it if they're giving me a chance to help them. And, and who, who knows where this is going to lead? You know, I could do this and be terrible at it, which they told me initially <laughs> I was not good at doing this because I was so nervous. I would fill the silence if I'd ask you a question. If you were a target, I just kept filling the silence because the other person would wait to, to talk and they'd listen to it later and say, I'm not doing a good job. And I said with them, I said, hey, it's my first time doing this. You know, I didn't learn this in pen um, <laughs> to wear a wire. So I eventually got good at that. And I was kind of shocked that when I saw 20 people arrested on CNBC, I will say, I didn't think it would lead to that because they never really gave me any feedback if I was doing a good job or not until 20 people were in handcuffs in the fall of 2009. So Tom, let's talk about, about that moment. Was it January 2010 when you were exposed as TipperX? That's right. I, I guess, uh, well, the FBI must have unveiled your, your details at that point. How prepared were you for prime time, for want of a better expression? Tell us about the fallout with everyone who knew you in business or privately. What happened? Yeah, so um, the FBI, so I hired an attorney. My attorney was shocked. I waited over a year to hire an attorney. Uh, he had never seen that before, but I guess I saved a year of legal fees. You know, I'm not sure how to look at that. Um, <laughs> and so I hired him, and then my name became public. The FBI said I need to do more for them. As, as you said, I wore a wire 48 times. We thought that was enough. And the FBI said, fine, your name's coming out tomorrow. So I didn't have much time to prepare. Um, I had a pretty terrible call with my brother the night before because he was in the industry also. And my God, like what his probably compliance people put him through. And, you know, he was not involved in this at all, but just having to tell him also being his older brother and having to tell him, you know, he doesn't people just lose trust. So that was terrible. And I could only tell beforehand, I could only tell my wife, and now everybody's going to know. So January 2010, Tipper X's Tom Harden was on the front of the printed um, edition of the Wall Street Journal. So it was actually front page news. It's a 24-hour news story, but it just feels like forever. So that day, uh, I had left my firm a few months before because I thought it might be any day. So I was a stay-at-home dad. Uh, it becomes public. My phone is ringing off the hook. People are actually stopping by my house in New Jersey looking for a quote. And I can tell you probably the lowest I felt was my wife, thank God, was still able to work. And she came home one day from work and was holding the baby, looking at us, crying and say, what did you do to us? So if you want to feel about it lower, as low as you can feel, I think that's when I did because I couldn't. I couldn't change the what I did in the past. I could only try to figure out how to get us out of this, but I had no idea what that meant. But that was probably the lowest day. There was just this public onslaught of, of on me trying to get a call, a quote, that type of thing. Now, I think in, a, in an earlier podcast uh, on the Jordan Harbinger show, uh, I heard you make reference to meeting the S&P analyst that this girl had put you in touch with, where, the in, where that initial insider information came from about Kronos. And you were asked to get together $10,000, put it in an envelope and meet this guy somewhere in New York City. And when I, when I kind of reflect on that and I hear that, I, the guy says to you, and you don't even stop, you just hand him the envelope. He says, are you Tom? And you just gave him the envelope and kept on going. And I have this kind of going around in my head, this vision of it not being the S&P analyst, but it being Tom Hardin at an older age. So let me ask you, what piece of advice would you tell your younger self to avoid the same outcome? Yeah, just to fill that in, um, after the first stock was acquired, Kronos, um, 
the woman called me a few minutes later and saying, you know, the person that had told her it was going to be in New York that week and that I should write him a check for $10,000. And X put a fill tirade for her saying, well, that sounds really illegal. Like I had rationalized the trade, but oh my God, I wouldn't do that. And she said he's going to have more. So I called my friend at the prop trading firm. Can you pass the hat around for anybody that made money? This is the situation. Got the cash together um, and then walked down 41st Street. Uh, he said, are you Tom in the corner? I held it up. I was so disgusted with myself uh, that I was doing this. And one, one sort of piece of advice for people is like, if you can't tell your uh, grandmother about what you're doing, it's probably probably not a good thing to be doing. But also, I think just stepping back, what was 40 something Tom today say to my 20 something self? Uh, I think I was drowning in insecurity because these other guys were cheating to get ahead. And when the test, you know, kind of when the, when the answer to the test fell in my lap, I totally went in um, and rationalized it when I should have just been focused on myself, improving as an investor, improving at the pattern recognition of investing. So one piece of advice for my younger self is just focus on competing against yourself. You're just trying to get better as an investor than you were yesterday. Who cares if other people are cheating to get ahead? Don't drown in insecurity. So I think that applies pretty much anywhere. Focus on yourself, compete against yourself. Don't drown in insecurity because other people, your competition is cheating to get ahead because the next cases may not be insider trading. It might be something else in the market where people are, are cheating to get ahead and just, just don't fall for that trap. Just changing track slightly. What about that? the younger generation today now investing in crypto? and related markets. Are they at similar risk given the lack of regulation and oversight in those markets, do you think? In the US, they're probably even more at risk because at least when I back when I broke the law, there were laws, there were regulations against insider trading. I have an issue with the way the SEC is enforcing crypto. It just seems to be regulation by enforcement rather than giving an actual framework for what businesses should be doing. So you assume that people want to do the right thing. So let's say 99% of people actually want to be doing the right thing. I think the wrong way to go about it is the way the SEC is doing it right now by, by creating regulations by enforcement. And so, yes, I think people are very much at risk here in the U.S., um, you know, in this market. I think if you're a young founder or builder, there's other markets around the world that are much more open to establishing very tangible regulatory frameworks. So think about Dubai or I was just speaking at a conference in the Bahamas at a crypto conference. Like they've, they've, they have the red carpet out and they want people to go down there and start businesses. And the regulator is very friendly and they don't want to be so punitive as the SEC is. So I hesitate to, because the SEC is actually friendly to me now and, and to what I'm doing. But I also would just say, look, you know, you have to, you can't regulate by enforcement in crypto. I don't want to really understand what they're doing. And I think it's driving a lot of our smartest minds away to start businesses um, in other countries. So. Tom, do you think, is, is there a silver lining of any shade here? Tell us about TipperX.com and what you do for a living now. Sure. So for years, um, you know, I would really, I was really destroying myself for the stupid choices I made and saying, you know, not only did I make bad choices, I'm also a terrible person. And I was dealing with a lot of shame uh, and, and guilt, but also shame. I never understood the difference. One of my first ever speaking engagements after the FBI was at a conference in New York, finance conference. I was kind of nervous. How was this going to be received? And it was so dark that the event planner was like, the audience doesn't feel you're okay. They actually like the story, but they could see you're not okay. And she actually explained to me the difference between shame and guilt. 
And so as we talk today, I guess, about mental health, um, there's a, there's important for people to understand the difference. Like shame is I'm a bad person. I did a bad thing. Uh, I don't think that's true. Now, guilt is I did a bad thing. And it kind of keeps me going every week to kind of talk about this the last seven years. And I guess as a good Catholic, too, it's my penance, um, I, I think, to do this today. So I definitely still have the guilt. Obviously, I wish I didn't do that. But given I can't change the past, how do I move forward? Um, do I try to uh, erase this? You know, some people in my situation after actually pay firms to erase their Google profile. Um, you know, I'm not sure how that would be possible. I, I get those emails all the time and just send them to my website. <laughs> so I'm not, not trying to erase it. I'm just trying to educate people on how does a regular person get in this situation? How does it start incrementally? So um, it was a long journey between shame and guilt and just being able to talk about this uh, with, with different groups. Tell us a little bit about TipperX. So today, uh, you know, the FBI was my first ever uh, speaking engagement. And today, um, my business is just a professional speaking corporate training business. Um, I'll often go in for an hour, uh, share a version of the story for 45 minutes and customize it for the crowd. So in a prep call with my clients, um, sometimes companies have me in who have had their own past issues with employees, maybe even something like this or something uh, related to regulatory fractions. And I'll work that sort of what happened there into my story. So it's really tangible for employees. And I also have some longer workshops where we'll talk about slippery slopes in, in other industries and then kind of work that in and, you know, what should you be doing at this point? So today um, I do about 50 talks a year, so about one one a week. And I'm actually working on a book now, too, um, so to get it all on the page. Because if I only have an hour, I can only tell so much about the story in the book is it will be a good outlet to get the whole story out there. So look for, forward to that. Probably not till 2025. So I'll, if people want to connect on LinkedIn, I'm happy to keep people updated. What kind of audience feedback do you get? Positive, negative, something different? Yeah, so over the 500 or so speeches, I, I don't know of anything that was negative. Now, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but people, um, I often get emails, especially from young professionals, you know, thank you so much for sharing that. It's something I'll never forget. And that's kind of like over and over again, what people say. Um, it creates discussion afterwards where people look at their own lives, even outside of work, like where are we rationalizing decisions that we make and is that the right thing to be doing? One thing that's come up over the last year is I talk in my talks often about mistakes versus bad decisions. When I started speaking years ago, um, somebody in the crowd said, oh, you made a bunch of mistakes and you certainly paid for it. And I said, I didn't make any mistakes. I made bad decisions. And I think if we all look and see that we make both mistakes and bad decisions, but you can't call your bad decisions mistakes because then you're not learning from your bad decisions. So just one thing for people to think about is like the difference between mistakes and bad decisions and to understand the difference. And then once you, once you hear that, I often hear years later in my talks, people still talk about, oh no, you're calling your bad decision a mistake and calling out their coworkers or, you know, just like it's something to our children, you know, with our kids, we can, we can certainly call them out for that. So it's just something that came to me, uh, you know, and that, that's, that's one thing that stays with people over the years. Tom Harden, Tipper X, thank you very much indeed for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure and a really good education for us all. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at ibkrpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com. 
financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and is necessary, seek professional advice.